Hey, it's good to see each and every one of you. Away for a week, and last week I had an opportunity to bring greetings to West End Baptists on behalf of this church. And uh, they want me to pass on their greetings to you folks as well. And uh, called us their sister. And so from, I guess, big sister to little sister at this point in time, they just want you to... Uh, accept their blessings and know that we're in their prayers as well. I was amazed. I met so many people in that church that I know and so many people that I've been acquainted with down through the years was we'll received there really graciously by the past by the pastor, Carolyn Steves, and by the pastoral staff as well. And uh, got to spend some quality time with them, talk about some things that are of mutual interest to both our congregations something that things that we'll be able to to work on even more in the future let me uh, let me thank the worship team this morning a different configuration today as well and uh, appreciate them for stepping into the gap some of our worship leaders are away and Ed was mentioned as well and and so it's always good to have those who who stand by the stuff Eugene has asked us to pray for the people in, uh, in Mindanao, Philippines. Martial law has been declared in that region, and an ISIS group is holding Marawi City hostage. And so that's a, that's a pretty tense time at this moment. And as soon as you mention the name ISIS, it conjures up all kinds of images for us. And so Eugene carries the, uh, carries the burden for his own people in the Philippines very heavily, and we certainly want to remember them in prayer today. Maxine updated us on Lindsay as well, and so we're going to include her at this point in time. She's uh, in a very serious, serious condition. And we read that beautiful card from uh, from uh, Ray, Raylene today. Raylene, if some of you will remember, because she's been referred to in the church in a different way is uh, Francis Dawes' sister, who was, uh, who was ill for a significant period of time. And uh, we held pretty well constant prayer for her here. So if you take a moment, just bow in your seats where, where you are with me, and we're going to remember these needs today. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the richness of the songs we've sung unto you. When we worship, we realize we're worshiping an audience of one that our praise ascends to you. Our focus is that you receive glory and honor. We're thankful for all that you've given us, for the understanding that we hold in our hearts today, that we're your children, and that you are a great heavenly Father. Thank you that we have a great high priest who's passed into the heavenlies, Jesus Christ, our Savior, ever living to make intercession for us. And so, Lord, you know the needs that we bring as before they're even spoken. And so today we pray that you'd, you'd watch over Lindsay today. She's been through a terrible ordeal already, and, it, and there are, there's evidence that this will, go, this will go even deeper. And so we pray for your comfort and for your strength. We pray that ministry will go out to her from you directly today in terms of strength and encouragement 
but also to those who surround her, to family who have to be so anxious. Pray for her medical team and those who treat her, that you'll be with them and guide them with skill and may the wisdom that they have gained be put to really good use at this point in time. And pray that you'd intervene in her life in a very personal way. We pray for the situation in the Philippines today and indeed these kinds of situations are numerous throughout our world today. So many people are threatened by terrorism and we've already mentioned some of these places today. But I pray, Father, that you would watch over these people and protect them and keep them. May their faith become stronger through what they, through what they face. And I pray that the futility of this violence will be seen for what it is that the world would be even more galvanized to put an end to this type, of, this type of misery that's inflicted upon people. So we thank you today for the way that you watch over each of us. Each of us has concerns and needs, and now as we turn our hearts towards your word, I pray that it will speak to us freshly today and that we'll receive challenge and encouragement that our spiritual person will be built up as you, you deal with us through what your word says. We thank you again for the opportunity of opening the scriptures with such freedom and with such joy. We pray that it will indeed be nutrition for our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We welcome back those who've recently returned from trips and... and uh, teaching assignments and all kinds of other things. Let me add my words of welcome to those, to you folks, and to welcome some visitors as well. I see people from my own family and, and uh, some other friends, former ministry co colleagues and others. We're so glad to have each of you with us today. I want to, uh, I want to speak to you today on a topic entitled, Is Your To-Do List Worth Doing? And we've all got those things. But let me take you first to something that maybe you'll remember. The plot line of this film was really in innovative and intriguing. Corporate billionaire Ed Edward Cole and working class mechanic Carter Chambers have nothing in common except for terminal illness. Both are stricken with cancer and have a tentative expiry date attached to their lives. Although Edward is reluctant to share a room with Carter, explaining that he looks half dead already, they become friends as they undergo their respective treatments. While sharing the hospital room together, they become friends and concoct a plan to leave it and do the things they've always wanted to do before they die according to what's known as the bucket list, the list of things that need to be done before a person kicks the bucket. In the process, both of them sort of heal each other as the plot line goes. They become unlikely friends and ultimately find a great deal of joy in life. Now it helps that these two, two characters are played by seasoned actors, Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. The bucket list was a box office success, 
opening at the very top of the box office and grossing a total of 174.3 million worldwide. Now, while I don't have a personal bucket list of much, of much repute, I suppose, most of, most of us have made to-do lists at some point in time. And many of us have things we want to do before that ultimate day when God calls us home. Maybe we do the list because of our bad memory. Maybe the sheer number of tasks that are assigned to us, things that we want to perform or someone else wants us to perform. To-do lists are those types of things, aren't they? Something somebody else wants, and I won't take it any further than that. A list makes us more focused on our tasks. And I must say, there is something that's very energizing and something very satisfying about checking things off as done and saying, I won't ever do this anymore. This is done for at least this season. But what if the things we put on our list and maybe our bucket list are pointless? What if some of those items make no difference whatsoever? What if they take so much time that they cause us to neglect really important things. Now, rather than have a to-do list, let me challenge you with the, with the idea of having a stop-doing list for all the things that are so outside our purpose that they actually become both a distraction from good goals or a deterrent from reaching life's important objectives. I'm wondering if there aren't people who reach the end of their days saying, I've done all of the silly things and left the important things undone. I dabbled around with junk and all of the big rocks are still lying on the ground or lying on the table, not in the jar. And Jesus has something to say on this subject, as he does on most subjects. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Starts out ominously. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your, your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Verse 5, you hypocrite. <laughs> One of Jesus' words that he uses so well. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Then he changes his metaphor. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to, to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Amen. Wonderful portion of scripture. 
So Jesus provided the best view of the character of his kingdom in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. And it also provides the character of the people who will really make up the kingdom of God. It has an extensive list of things that we need to delete and a number of things that we need to add to our to-do list. I have a specific focus this morning, but there are several pieces of advice in the preceding two, two chapters. You see, here's a few things that Jesus said should not be on your list. He outrightly says it. Do not murder. Do not break your oath or break your word. Do not resist an evil person. When you give, don't let someone know how, how much. When you fast, don't announce it to the world. When you pray, don't act like the heathens and have long prayers in public. And uh, maybe the toughest one, do not worry about your life or about tomorrow. And that's a good stop doing list. If we stop doing all of these things, we're going to do pretty well. Rough, but we can do that. Now, many of the things Jesus speaks about in this famous sermon are ethical issues. They're matters that help us define our character. They're things like humility and gentleness and temperance and peacefulness and trust. And I think Jesus understood that time is a, is a dreadful thing to waste because we only have so much of it. How would you like to spend two years making phone calls to people who aren't home? Sound absurd to you? According to one time management study, that's how much time the average person spends trying to return calls to people who never seem to be in. Not only that, we spend six months waiting for the traffic light to turn green, especially the one on Mount Bernard. And we spend another eight months reading junk mail. Now, these unusual stats should cause us to do some time-use evaluation. Once we recognize that simple life maintenance can chip away at time in such huge blocks, we will see how vital it is that we don't busy ourselves doing things that are really in vain. No ultimate purpose. Psalm 39 gives us some Old Testament perspective. David's got a little bit of a complaint that he's airing to God. He says, you've made my days as hand's breath. My days are like the width of my hands, and my age is as nothing before, before you. And I suppose he meant that to an eternal God. Our time on earth is so brief, and our days go by so very quickly, and he doesn't want us to waste it. When we do, we throw away one of the most precious commodities he gives us because every minute that we spend is an irretrievable gift. It's an unredeemable slice of our life. I know you've got to make the telephone calls. I know you've got to wait at the light. This is not license from your pastor to go out on the red, the red lights tomorrow just because you're saving time you could end up uh, losing a whole lot more than, than you bargained for. But what about the rest of the time? What do we really do to advance the cause of Christ and to enhance our relationship with him? If that's a big rock in your world, if that's important, is our time well spent? 
Paul told the Christians that he had influence over to redeem the time or buy it back. He characterized it in that kind of way as an expensive commodity that had to be used wisely and be used constructively. Solomon accomplished everything on his wish list. He had the big list. And he said he put his mind and he put his energy and he put his resources to everything. And at the end of his days, he said it's vanity, it's nothing, it is meaningless. What a terrible place to come to at the end of your days to say it amounts to nothing. See, in, t in light of time's value and speed, cutting life back to more essential things is a good idea. The Lord spoke of these things because he saw people missing the mark of life. They had a to-do list that was contrary to the character of, of his, new, his new kingdom. His words are easy to understand but hard to practice. And the first statement he made in our text this morning is this one. Do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And it's easy to discern and it's easy to know from scripture that Jesus lived amongst a group of religious snipers. The religious people of Jesus' day liked to target something that was wrong and get the offender in the crosshairs and pull the trigger with a great deal of joy. Scribes and the Pharisees, for the most part, derived amazing pleasure out of finding some poor sinner and then blasting him for all it, for all it was worth. They loaded both barrels with the Mosaic law and snooped around just waiting for a chance to unload. And their brand of judgment should be better known as judgmentalism. It's an attitude that, see, that seeks to distance the righteous from the unrighteous by exposing everyone's wrongs. And Jesus became their target almost instantly, and it goes through his ministry constantly. The sin police followed Jesus wherever he went, trying to determine which law he'd broken and what penalty they could prescribe upon him. The Son of God, who could do miracles, who could heal with just a touch. And someone is going behind his back, just following him around, looking for where he's making mistakes. Let me point out a few occasions to you that are only in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus is judged. He called Matthew as one of his disciples, and he says, they said, Jesus is hanging around with the wrong kind of people. He cast out demons, and the religious leader said he used the devil's power to drive out demons. He plucked grain to eat on the Sabbath day and was harshly condemned for threshing grain because he ground it into something that could be eaten, and so they said, you're working on the Sabbath day. He healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and they accused him of working on a labor-prohibited day, and so they went out and plotted his death. So you do something good for a person. No good deed goes unpunished, that kind of idea. But do you hear one word of praise to God for the suffering that was halted by the actions of Jesus? Do you realize how much time and energy is wasted trying to fix people? To make them become obedient to some kind of a set of reg reg regulations, no matter how good these regulations might be or might not be. And what Jesus effectively says is for us to stop judging other people because our practices to condemn will be used against us if we fall into sin or error ourselves. He illustrates the principle very strongly. 
to bring him a woman accused of adultery. And you know the scene. He stoops down and he writes in the sand and whatever he writes, the accusers slink away from the oldest to the youngest and we have driven ourselves crazy trying to understand what Jesus wrote. I do know he probably applied a, a new rule of judgment. He that is without sin cast the first stone. And they all left until just Jesus and the woman faced each other. And I don't think Jesus wrote something that they wanted to put on their resume or their headstone. It shook them up. It sent them scurrying away. So it had to be something that really challenged them. If we become judgmental, we create the capacity to create walking wounded. It has the ability for us to create living dead. I know I'm on the edge of zombieism, but I won't, so I won't go any further. There's enough of that out there. There's nothing more counterproductive than creating casualties who bear bitter witness of having been judged until they want no part of the kingdom of God. I meet them every day of my life. People who live with more discouragement, they live with more fear. They live with more baggage from their past than they need to carry. See, passing judgment is part of the culture that we live in. We think our culture is very, 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 very permissive and open, and in some respects it is. But if you ever watched Idol, either one of those shows, ever watched a Survivor, all feature judgments of people. Your performance is rated, your attitude is rated, and if it doesn't measure up to something, you're sent, you're sent packing. You'll get voted off the island or you'll get eliminated from the contest and you tuck your tail between your legs, take your losses and you run. And we become so nice about it because we, we even take people who judge, call them analysts. Such a benign word, isn't it? We analyze things today. We've got systems analysts, people who tell you your computer's on the fritz. We've got political analysts, people who think they know which move is likely to lose you fewer votes. And boy, is there a market for those people in our world. Financial analysts, people who tell you how to best invest your money, but the first thing you've got to do is give them some of it. <laughs> We've got forensic analysts. Forensic analysts, people who can take a few drops of your bodily fluid, of your stomach contents, and almost tell you your life story. CSI has taught us to think like that, hasn't it? And then you've got psychoanalysts, people who probe your mind for something in your past to explain why we're so messed up now. You can get analyzed to death. Even been wonderful movies about this. One called Analyze This. I don't want to get into that movie this morning either. You see, God's analysis, unlike ours, has, has two features. It's prescriptive and it's restorative. He doesn't want to bring us down. He wants to build us up. And sometimes we can engage in demolition of a type, but God's work is always edification. 
building people. And the illustration Jesus used to support his point is brilliant. It's the case of the, the speck of sawdust and the plank. It's a wonderful picture if you can grasp it. He paints a ludicrous portrait of a person trying to pick a speck of sawdust from someone else's eye while being on a, unaware that they have a four-by-four four post or a two-by-four in their own. The person doing the picking perceives someone else's small problem but is blind to their own big one. The beam in their eye pre prevents a clear focus on how to help another person. And Jesus makes it clear from his use of this that when we pass judgment on the other person, we have just created a measurement tool for our own analysis. Let me illustrate the principle from an Old Testament example. Here's where this comes, should become nice and clear. It's the account of how the prophet Nathan comes to David with a sad story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let me read some verses for you and you'll see it unfold. The Lord sent Nathan to David, Nathan being the prophet. When he came to him, he said, he's going to tell him a story. There are two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against a man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. It's the king's judgment. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. <laughs> which man? Let me assure you, he means the rich man. You're the man who took the lamb. Why did you, and Nathan's, here's Nathan's assessment, really God's assessment. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes, you struck down Uriah the, Hitt the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your home. The measurement by which you judge another person becomes the measurement by which you get judged yourself. And David felt the power of it. Now, this has nothing to do with discipline inside the church. I'm in favor of this. But if the passage says anything to me, it tells me that I'm not God and I'm not commanded to pass judgment upon another person. If I'm willing to sit in the judge's seat, I've also got to be willing to sit in the seat of the condemned or the accused. Now, I know what it's like to have had a piece of sawdust go into my eye. I built a... I built a chair recently that you put on your deck with a little table in between. 
and you can put your coffee on the table and the chair is designed so that your wife sits on one side and you sit on the other. So you're sitting together just with a little table that you can put your tea and coffee on. And I must say it turned out remarkably well, but I'm not doing them commercially. But let me tell you this, there is no way that a foreign object can rest in your eye without you knowing it. It burned, it watered, and, an ir and it irritated me. It flew off the table saw, and it got me. I used every method I could to get it out. I remember coming to my wife and asking if she could see it. I stood in the mirror making faces that would terrify kids on hell Halloween night. All because of one little speck of sawdust that landed in my eye. And I wouldn't trust anyone to take it out, especially if they had a two-by-four in their own eye. They're more incapacitated than I am. So do something for me when you go home in the afternoon today. Find a piece of wood about four feet long. If you don't have one, Carrie will find one for you. Get a few ropes and bungee cords and strap the piece of wood around your head so that it sticks out at the level of your eye. And then put a patch over one of your eyes. Get a friend over or use one of your children. Or if you want to have some real fun, use your spouse. And try to get close enough to look into their eyes to see if there's a, a speck of sawdust or an eyelash in one of their, of their eyes. And I will suggest to you now that trying to get close means that the piece of wood that's strapped to your head is going to batter the person that you're getting close to. Now try going to bed wearing that kind of a getup. At the very least, it'll be in the way, but it'll, you, you'll get an appreciation for how much damage we can do when we try half-blind microsurgery on someone else's eye. Now, if you try this in the afternoon, it's my, I'm telling you that you have my permission to do it, but it's like a make-work project for me because I would expect concussions, a few fights, a separation or two, and a full week of hospital visits next week. See, when you... You look at what it would be like if you tried it, you get a good impression. Jesus is right. Best way I can help my brother is to get the beam out of my eye. And in so doing, offer him hope that if I can be rele released from such a huge log in my eye, there's hope for the speck of sawdust in his. God can do something great like that. And he certainly can take care of my small issue. And if he wants to keep it and put up with the, the irritation of it, then you'll just have to deal with it. Abraham Lincoln stated, those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves. Jesus wasn't done. Now, I read him here saying that there are some people who just won't be helped. They just refuse all kinds of help. You can preach to them. You can witness to them. You can offer them all kinds of spiritual help, but nothing is going to change their minds. They have a to-do list, and they're stuck with it. Spinning your wheels on lost causes, whoa, should really be on our stop-doing list. There are people you and I both know who are away from God who've invented more reasons not to live as a Christian than any of us can remember. They've heard more sermons, absorbed so much gospel that they could easily become preachers themselves. Now, it's, it, it's tough language, but Jesus saw people of his day and he knew they would never accept his message. 
And he refused to waste time on them. He said, I'm not doing this over and over and over again. He moved on to those with receptive hearts. And some might say, my, that's rather calloused and cruel. No, it's good time management because you only got so much of it. Use it wisely. Jesus takes it a step further. He says it's comparable to taking the sacrificial meat from the altar of the Lord and casting it to a dog, because to the dog it's just meat. He'll rip it apart and satisfy his hunger. Then Jesus changes his metaphor, never at a loss for one. He says it's like dressing up a pig with a fine collection of pearls. And that's why Miss Piggy always cracks me up, because she wears them constantly. A pig would prefer a potato peel to a pearl. Its value is wasted because their appetites are for their belly and not their soul. And likewise, there are people to whom the gospel is presented that are far more insistent on obeying their fallen nature than ever reaching for eternal life. And there are times in your life that you're simply going to have to move on and find better soil to plant the seed of the gospel. It's tough, but it becomes necessary. I want to close with something to keep on your to-do list. I can be assured that if I'll take my two-by-four or my speck of sawdust to God, I can be sure he'll deal with, he'll deal with me in grace. Whether the problem is big or whether the problem is small, fact is we all need his redeeming power. If there's judgment to be passed, I need to judge myself first. And that's what I think Jesus was saying when he concluded. He says, ask and it will be given to you. I think he's talking about vision. Seek and you will find. He's talking about understanding. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That's good action. For everyone who asks, receives. Here's the character of the kingdom of God. Everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. It's so important in the day in which we live to be sensitive to what's going on around us. And to not waste our time on meaningless things. Shortly after I arrived on the West Coast, which is quite a number of years ago now, I took a day trip to the gaff, to the gaff topsails to look over the areas I traveled as a boy by train and hadn't seen in a long time. I came back late in the evening. Darkness had come down and in the darkness I saw somebody on what looked like a, a quad coming down the trail, same trail I was on. Usually at that time of day, and it was a cold day, I remember it well, when someone passes, you just put your hand up in some kind of a wave and you pass each other. But on this occasion, he slowed down, so I slowed down, and a long conversation in the night began between two people who were total strangers to each other. I'd never seen the man before in my life. We talked about rabbits, and he had a couple. We talked about sign of moose and other woodsy topics. First time I ever met him. A few weeks later, he arrived in the church that I pastored with his wife. 
And within a few months, he was a regular attender. We shared times of fellowship, and we had a number of meals, meals together, and quite a number of conversations. I'll always remember the heart-to-heart chat we had one day as the Lord spoke to my heart, and the Lord spoke to his. If you ask for anything on your to-do list, or even if you have a bucket list, ask the Lord to free you from meaningless things and open you to encounters that have eternal benefits. Ask the Lord to open you to times when he will use you to make a difference in someone's life. Now, final question for you before I pray this morning. Would God honor what's on your bucket list? If you have a to-do list today, whether it's mentally or whether you've written it down and said, these are my life objectives. This is what I want to do between now and the day I die. Would God honor Is there anything there that even remotely looks like something that advances his kingdom? And I trust that on the day when you finally face the end, I trust you'll be able to look back and see that the things you accomplished were absolutely worth doing. Would you bow with me and pray? Father, thank you this morning for the sheer blessing it is to know you. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who comes to us to guide us into truth. Thank you for the word of God and these wonderful words of Jesus that guide us in the development of the priorities we hold for our lives. I pray that what we choose to do will have lasting impact. That something of this blessing of a life that you've given us will endure beyond ourselves. I pray that we will have led people to know Jesus Christ. I pray that we'll have made an impact upon our family that gives them the kind of values they need in the world in which which we live. I pray that you'll free us from small thinking that only sees the the obstacles in others without seeing the problems within ourselves. And so, Lord, by the tools that we have at our disposal, mature us as Christians. May our thinking be bigger than the smallness of this world or the smallness of, of things and ideas that will just die with us. I pray that we will honor you with what we do with our lives, that we will indeed do as Paul exhorted to redeem the time for the days are evil. So thank you for the blessing of this time we've spent, spent together today. I pray, Spirit of God, that you'll speak to our hearts constantly. Guide us towards the, the big rocks that have to go in this jar. Pray that we'll serve you with gladness. We'll serve you with meaning. 
that in all things you'll receive the glory, the honor, and the praise. And I pray now that the God of all comfort would establish our hearts, that the peace of God would send us forth from this place with joy and with gladness. And I pray that the presence of the Spirit in our lives will be felt in a world that needs your touch. And to you be glory, praise, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.